Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am a nutrition and exercise physiology professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And I'm going solo today. Um, Phil is doing a leukemia charity event, and uh, Rob is protecting Canadians from bad guys. Um, and I have with me Jaya Dixit. Welcome to the show, Jaya. Thank you. Hi. Great to be here. Um, I'm going to cover just a little bit of news, not to be rude. Um, Iron Radio News and Science News. Then we're going to talk about Jaya's background. In fact, this is sort of the summer of the Iron Women in a sense because we've had a growing female listenership and, um, you know, we're just sort of trying to respond to that. We've got uh, Jaya today. Um, we have um, yoga practitioner and powerlifter, and I don't know her name. Uh, Phil knows her. She's going to be on in coming weeks, and so is Christine Bongiovanni, who we're going to have back. She's an IFBB professional bodybuilder. Uh, she's going to be talking about contest preparation. But uh, let's get to some of this uh, news. First, an Iron Radio news. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, those of you who aren't active on our Facebook page, there's been just a lot of back and forth and controversy about our last guest. Uh, John Davies, I think, irritated some people, uh, and there were times during that conversation where it did sound a little bit like, you know, in my day, you know, kind of things, and, you know, curmudgeons sort of fussing. But um, I, I like John. Uh, I know some people don't, uh, and I know Phil likes him. Um, there were some parts of that conversation that seemed to be really down on just going to the gym, which I can't say I, I agree with that part. Um, obviously, going to the gym is an important part of what all of us do. But I do want listeners to understand a couple of things. John knows some things that most people don't about the fitness industry. And I think it's colored and even jaded some of his outlooks, I think. Uh, so he's seen some injustices, I think. But anyway, I just wanted to touch on that. Um, you know, I always looked at science as sort of a problem-solving, hopeful kind of thing, though. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to Talk to Jaya, who uh, has an education, master's degree in sociology, and, you know, sort of address certain online types of things that are changing the fitness industry uh, that we talked about before. So with some of the Iron Radio stuff out of the way, I have a little bit of science and a little bit uh, more Iron Radio types of things. Here are two papers that came across my desk that I think are interesting. Uh, this first one for listeners, uh, you know that we've discussed – Overfeeding, purposeful overfeeding before as a way to gain weight and how when, that, when you do that, sometimes it actually becomes increasingly difficult because your metabolic rate will increase as you overfeed. Well, there's a new paper about this from Thurl and colleagues, Journal of Clinical Endocrinology Metabolism, 2013 May. Uh, so brand new stuff. It's called Extent and Determinants of Thermogenic Responses to 24 Hours of Fasting energy balance, and five different overfeeding diets in humans. So the context here is that there's individual variation 
in the ab ability to uh, convert excess calories to actual heat. In other words, for your metabolic rate to jump up after you start to overfeed. So they took 20 subjects, 75% um, of them men. I find that a little odd because, you know, I'd like to see a 50-50 mix or not because it makes it very difficult to make conclusions when three quarters of your, you know, your subject population is one gender or another. But, okay, they gave them five different diets uh, with double normal energy requirements. So imagine if uh, most college guys eat around 3,000 calories a day, so feed them 6,000. So, you know, this is a... A big uh, jump. Anyway, the diets were uh, given in random order. There was a high-carb version with uh, low protein. There was a high-carb normal protein version, and they call normal protein about 20% of calories. There was a high-fat low-protein group, a high-fat normal protein group, and then finally a balanced group. Uh, so anyway, I think they're looking at the effects of our two main fuels, right, carbs or fats with either lots of protein, uh, you know, at least adequate protein, or low as they overfeed. And they measured people in a metabolic chamber. So uh, what happened? Well, it looked like there were similar increases above their eucaloric feeding, you know, their even keel, like I said, 3,000 calorie per day, let's say, average intake, um, of about 11%. So it was 11 plus or minus 6% jump in metabolic rate. So in the past, sometimes we've talked about how your metabolic rate increases and it makes it a little tougher to keep gaining weight. But I don't want people to think that your metabolism increases 50% or 75%. In any case, so about 11% jump. And interestingly, their sleeping energy expenditure increased about 14%. There's a more um, spread in that 14 plus or minus 11%, depending on the person. Uh, anyway, it says the energy expenditure response, this jump in metabolic rate from overfeeding, was attenuated in the low-protein overfeeding groups. So in other words, if protein's not a significant part of the picture, you don't really see that jump in overfeeding metabolic rate. So that's sort of interesting. It says there's an intrinsic energy expenditure response to overfeeding, um, and also as a side note, it actually correlated negatively with adiposity. So the more body fat that the subjects carried, the less their metabolic rate jumped up. Um, so I guess the take-home message here, uh, you are likely to see an 11% jump or so in metabolic rate if your overfeeding diet contains 20% protein or better. Um, however, unlikely for our listener group, I think, I would avoid huge overfeeds with low protein. Whether you're overfeeding with carbs or fats as your energy of choice, uh, I don't think I would go nuts on just the fuel substrates and leave protein out of it. Like I said, I think that's sort of unlikely. So anyway, uh, more stuff on overfeeding. It's always uh, – there's always something. And there are past episodes for people who are interested where we've looked at that closely. Interesting stuff. Um, the other one I have is about protein, and it's going to lead me to some Iron Radio news. But journal um, – what is this? Sci Food Agriculture, 2013, again May, uh, the effect of whey protein hydrolysates with different molecular weight on fatigue induced by swimming exercise in mice. So they're looking at different sized molecules of whey protein in their ultra filtration process. I, I think it's amazing that not only are we considering whey isolates versus hydrolysates, but we're actually looking at how you know, filtered, how tiny are the molecules? And I'm not going to bore you with the kill Dalton sizes and whatnot too much, but um, 
uh, and again, this is mice, and it's about fatigue. It's not about growth or protein synthesis, but um, they had a control group. It was just saline that they gave them. It says low molecular weight, and those, for those of you who care, less than 10 kilodalton size, could prolong the swimming time in mice compared to the others. Also demonstrated higher blood glucose concentrations, higher liver glycogen, and um, interesting to me, uh, elevated endogenous or natural antioxidant enzyme activity, uh, superoxide dismutase and glutathione peroxidase. These are two enzymes that are naturally going to upregulate in people who train anyway, uh, but it looks like the whey protein of the smaller sizes is really good at this. Uh, we've known that whey protein increases these antioxidant enzymes, but uh, it looks like the low molecular weight, the super filtered, really small molecule, ends up providing better, you know, radical, free radical scavenging ability. Um, it says, this study suggests low molecular weight, whey protein hydrolysis, less than 10 kilodaltons in size, uh, have higher anti-fatigue capacity. So again, it's just in mice. Um, this is from China, this study. Anyway, interesting stuff as we get more and more refined, I think, in our approaches to um, protein and uh, especially whey protein. Um, the two bits of iron radio news that I want to lead off of that is if you're interested, there's a new protein article actually about eating large amounts of protein, um, regardless of type, not just whey, uh, on the Strength Guild website. And it's also been picked up on several blogs where there's commentaries about it. Case Performance, Shot of Adrenaline, uh, Mike Nelson's Extreme Human Performance blog. So spreading the word about that, just a little like mini review using scientific literature, of course, on what happens when you eat tons of protein. Do you start to burn it? If so, for how long? Things of that nature. And the second point is uh, I'm going to actually start a beta, a beta test, if you will, on the anabolic brownies that I've been talking about lately. If you've noticed at all on the Facebook page, there were a few, I posted a picture, I think I tweeted something, and again, this is relevant to our topic today, but, and there were some people talking back and forth. So what I've been doing actually is I mentioned that some of these cake and brownie um, flowers are so uh, forgiving when it comes to packing them full of extra protein. I've been putting extra whey and casein or, or leucine or both, uh, in these brownie recipes, or oat bran even. So here's what I'd like to do, and I'll start a thread on our Facebook page, sort of serves as our forums, of course, but I need 10 people to beta these. What I'd like you to do is, if you make a $10 donation to Iron Radio, and actually what I'm going to use this for is a student research trip, um, but if you do that, uh, I'll send you one little box, just of nine of these anabolic brownies, and again, it's not like they have, you know, it's just protein and leucine. Um, you could tell me if you want the oat brand type or the non-oat brand type. Uh, the oat brand type would be something more relevant to general snacking, I think. And then the non-oat brand ones, what I would say for after a workout. But there's actually been some good data from Stu Phillips' group that you could consume a, a lower than 20-gram dose of protein, and if there's enough leucine in it, you'll get a very robust protein synthetic response. So that's sort of where a lot of this started. Plus, I wanted a snack that was, um, you know, just something tasty that I could eat when I got home from the gym, put some carbs back in me and, and get a sort of a, a protein synthesis response. But um, and what I'm doing is, of course, the reason I'm asking for 10 volunteers is I'm going to vary the recipe a little, a little more protein, a little more leucine, that sort of thing. And I just need feedback. 
So you'll help me kind of develop this whole thing with the anabolic brownies and help some of my students at the same time. If, if you're interested and you are active on our Facebook page, uh, check it out. Okay, so thank you, J.F., for your patience there. My pleasure. Let's just quickly uh, talk about your origin story. Um, I know you were very active on the T Nation forums years ago and that sort of thing. What got you interested in resistance training and lifting and fitness and that sort of thing? And maybe you could even talk about your uh, academic origins as well. Yeah, sure. So I, I came to lifting by way of sports. I, I played field hockey in high school. I went on to play um, in university at Carleton University and then at the University of Calgary. Um, and so, you know, during those years, I worked with awesome strength and conditioning coaches. You know, I've pretty much done it all. I've pushed the prowler. I've, you know, done my time in the squat rack, um, lots of uh, endurance work, too. So I have a pretty, I mean, um, you know, my my training was pretty, you know, I don't know if I'm really using this term right, sports specific. But, um, okay. uh, yeah, and then, you know, once... Um, you know, once I called in my field hockey career, I, you know, I kept lifting. It was the love of uh, being active really stayed with me. So I, you know, I still lift, I swim, I hike. Um, you know, I live close to the mountains, so I try to get outside and exercise as much as I can. But, uh, yeah, I, I um, yeah, being active is still a pretty serious part of my life. I mean, we all know that once you have kids, it's uh, <laughs> it, it falls down the priority list for a couple months and then pops back up. But, uh, yeah, so living close to the mountains, you know, you obviously try to take advantage of these physical landscapes, right. which provide some pretty scenic resistance. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, so so the, the resistance training and some of the, the things you did for sport, it's nice that you've been able to continue to do those things. And, you know, once university is done, you don't just stop. You know Absolutely, what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. Sort of solo pursuit kind of thing. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think for anyone who's been competitive in any sport, you know that it's uh, it's like, a, you know, the, the hunger for being active really stays with you. It's not it's not a fire that extinguishes itself once, once sport is done. Yeah, so one of the things I always thought was interesting about that is oftentimes the sport is the reason that you do, you know, the additional fitness work, but the sport goes away and the fitness work and the lifting remains, right? It's just yeah. kind of funny. Yeah, and, you know, in my own case, I've found that, you know, a lot of the residual aches and pains of sport have actually been relieved by continuing to be active. And, um, and so I've really used, you know, lifting and various types of therapy and exercise to relieve a lot of those pains and injuries. Yeah, actually, that's that's an interesting point. That's something that I really noticed, too, is, um, listeners have heard me say before, I'm not really built for, you know, high level competitive powerlifting. I'm not a real big person. I have little joints and that's the kind of thing that is not great for, for powerlifting to be honest. But mm -hmm. the point is uh, sort of, um, what I would just call a bodybuilding kind of routine has allowed me to stay active, you know, and maintain a certain amount of muscle mass, uh, and avoid injuries that I think the really heavy lifting probably would have done to me, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. I, I think it's a, it can be therapeutic, yeah, or even oh, yeah. corrective, like you're saying. Yeah, and after training for years and years with teammates, it's really, it's a really different journey to be travel to be um, training on your own. So I mean, I feel like you know everything that's old is new again now that I'm doing it by myself. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about your academic origins then. Did did sport have any impact on your 
well, I know your degrees vary, so let's let's just go back up a step and just maybe describe for everybody uh, your background in uh, higher education. Right. So I have I have an undergraduate degree in political science, um, and then I did more undergraduate work in sociology. And this is kind of around. This is really the place where you know my my time as as an athlete intersected with my. Um, you know, my academic interests, and, and I decided that I wanted to keep going in sociology and do a master's because uh, I was I was really interested in a lot of these discourses, sort of discussions around healthy eating and food. So um, that's, that's where I went. I went to the University of Calgary, and I spent two years doing coursework and writing and defending a thesis, and that's where I am now. Okay. Yeah, uh, listeners know that we try to touch on food and eating and those sorts of things, too, because, of course, you know, I think in the fitness communities, maybe especially with the weightlifters, uh, whether you're a powerlifter or a bodybuilder, we do some unusual things. You know, um, we have a contest going on right now about gaining as much weight as you can. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think it's it's unusual when most people hear you say, oh, I'm trying to gain weight, Um you know, they look at you funny. Uh, in my dietetics courses, that always seemed odd. I remember I took a behavior modification class once, and um, I was trying to consistently eat 4,500 calories a day, and they just thought that was nutty, absolutely nutty. Um, and I think it's because usually it's the opposite, right? Obviously, there's an obesity problem, and everybody is trying to do the opposite. In fact, on our Facebook page, there's a back and forth about the social versus the biological ramifications of being overweight or obese. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's always a contentious uh, sort of topic because we're talking about how sometimes size acceptance can almost go too far um, in a way, although some of it I think is important. But in any case, yeah, the, the diets that we engage in, I think, are sometimes odd. Uh, and I think that will probably take us to our topic of the day because – for example, I know Phil, and a lot of listeners know that Phil will blog all kinds of uh, meals. You know, he calls it food porn. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff that is presented as something that he enjoys, you know, and maybe even to give ideas to others. But these are not the traditional, like, I don't know, vegetable, rich, loaf fat, I don't know, traditional healthy kinds of recipes that he's putting out there. It's, but you have to think about his goals, of course, you know, mm-hmm. high calorie, um, you know, he's very meat oriented, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, some of this stuff gets um, interesting because you start to wonder what kind of um, testimonial maybe goes with that. And, and, and again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. So let's go to break just quickly. And when we come back, uh, we'll ask Jay a little bit about... Um, you know, food blogging. I think the title was Instagram, as in Graham, get it? <laughs> posting, <laughs> posting food pics. I think I'm online. laughing alone over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in in text it looks funny, but to say it verbally, I, I wonder how much you were going to catch that. Okay, so we'll be back in just a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lonman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So, 
uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for 69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the 99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everybody, we're back. This is Lonnie, and I have Jaya Dixit with me, and we're talking about food. Um, in particular, we're going to, in a sense, continue last week's theme, at least one of them, which is you know, how the online community is changing the fitness world and, and uh, even the nutrition world. Um, and I've got some questions for Jaya about people doing food blogging and photo blogging and whatnot. I think first, uh, Jaya, maybe tell listeners about the uh, what you've deemed the you know testimonial or the accountability function of posting meal photos on either Facebook or blogs or Instagram or or whatever. Right. So I mean, you know, traditionally people have kept a lot of people have kept food journals, right, where we we keep this written log of everything we're eating during the day in order to hold ourselves to account, right, to make sure we're hitting certain you know targets for macros or staying within a certain calorie range. Um, but, you know, now with, with all of these new online tools, what we can do instead is put pictures up. And this, what's interesting about this is that not only are we holding ourselves to account, but we're really putting ourselves out there. We're telling other people what we're eating. We're showing them what it looks like. And, you know, if you're doing this on a regular basis, if you're posting, you know, three, six meals a day, seven days a week, essentially what happens is that people come to expect that you're eating certain things every day because you've established that expectation by posting these pictures. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of a, you know, this, this is a way of telling people what you're doing, what your lifestyle is like without actually using words. It's a way of saying, you know, I'm, I'm at the gym, I'm working hard, I'm lifting five days a week, I'm having post-workout meals, I'm having pre-workout shakes, but we're never uttering a word, right? We're saying it all in photo. 
Mm-hmm. Well, like the old phrase, picture's worth a thousand words. Yeah, right? so, absolutely. Right. So last week we were discussing about people. In fact, uh, Davies was discussing a, a need some people have for recognition, right. you know, as far as, you know, here's a picture of me. And, of course, he, he was critiquing about people taking pictures in the front of the toilet and that sort of thing. And, right. you know, here's what my abs look like today compared to yesterday, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, but so you're saying that's also true uh, of food. Um, is there anything specific about the fitness community, you think, or, or is this very widespread? Well, you know, I think I think what's specific about the fitness community is maybe the kinds of meals we expect to see, right? There, and you, you sort of talked a little bit about this with, with the stuff Phil is posting um, and getting away from these images of really stereotypical lifter meals, right? Like protein shakes, um, like you know, cans of tuna, you know, steamed broccoli with chicken. And so in the lifting community, really, the, the specific thing is what kinds of food do we expect to see? And, and, you know, surprisingly, we're not really seeing a lot of those things anymore because, you know, when we're showing pictures to people, we, we can't expect them to want to see things that are, that are boring, right? And so mm-hmm. the more we see people posting, the more we realize that, like, wow, people, people are eating really creative, really interesting things that, I, I, you know, I didn't think someone who was getting ready for a figure competition could eat like that, you know? And it's, it's not mm-hmm. really about what people are eating. It's about how it looks. And I don't think anyone will deny that, especially when we get these places of restriction, right, where people are really monitoring diets and people are really adhering closely to you know, certain, like I said, ranges of macronutrients or calories, you know, we we start to obsess a little bit about food and people a lot of the time get their fix by looking at pictures of food. This is, this is really the food porn aspect of food, right? There's a, there's a fix involved. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I've actually, now I've actually heard that's very true of um, certain anorexic patients, people with anorexia nervosa, where they, they won't eat it themselves, but they have sort of obsessed. They like to rearrange food and play with it on their plate. They like to prepare it for others. They like to experience it without swallowing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if, if that's similar to what you're saying of you know, what competitors are like or not. But Well, you know, I I can't say anything conclusively because I haven't interviewed a competitor. But, you know, I'm really – I'm sort of generalizing a little bit here because I think, you know – we aren't just seeing people in the lifting community posting. We're seeing people across all these different variations on healthy, right? People who are, people who are vegan, people who are, you know, people who are lifters, people who are athletes, people who are, you know, physique competitors, people who are weekend warriors. Um, but I think what's, what's, as I said, specific to this lifting community is that we, we do see people um, really manipulating their, their food choices to reach these physique goals. Now, I know that I've, in the past, um, I've sort of evolved. Sometimes I'll I'll tweet something that I'm making, but mostly because I think, at least for me, I think, you know, this is a time-saving or an inexpensive idea. And I think there are probably people who, for example, like you said, they might say, oh, I'm surprised that Dr. Lowry eats that, you know, um, mm-hmm. because I'll post something like tuna helper that I just stuffed full of extra tuna or peas or broccoli or, you know, it was just sort of a, almost a recipe rehab, but it was – it was a budget kind of thing. To me, it was a realistic kind of thing as opposed to trying to create, um, I don't know, some coolness about, oh, look what I'm <laughs> consuming. You know what I mean? It's not so much an endorsement as it is just an idea, but I can see that, like you're saying, there is a certain um, testimonial aspect to that because I'm saying I eat this, you know, so you might want to as well or people might think, well, he likes that. He thinks that's good. Maybe I should, 
you know, try that sort of thing. Absolutely. And, you know, if we're not posting pictures of our bodies online and what they look like, the next closest thing in some ways is posting pictures of the food we're eating. This is a way we show people that we can maintain, I don't know, maybe dietary austerity, that we can, you know, that we have willpower or, you know, the, the, the opposite maybe that, you know, even under circumstances of scarcity, we can find creative ways to make food look good and taste good. And, you know, really what this, what this translates into is, is this idea that, you know, your expertise in your field of sport is something you can show in pictures without ever showing people what your body looks like. You know, that the better you can make the picture look, the more appetizing the food looks, the more you're showing that not only do you, not only do you know your food, but you know how to make it taste good. Like we're seeing a real mixing of genres here. It's, it's not good enough anymore, you know, if you're, if you're going to, count yourself as a guru in, in nutrition and eating well, it's, it's not good enough to just have the information. You have to be able to package it in the way that people think looks appealing, right? People don't just want the information. They want the pictures. They want the recipes. They want, you know, all the nitty-gritty that goes with it. Right, exactly. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Um, so you, you were mentioning the, the way it looks and, um, you know, how presentation and the sort of polished media image hugely impacts the way people perceive, you know, that testimonial feature or, you know, the, the credentials of the person that are doing it, mm -hmm. right? So what makes these photos good or professional? What do you think? Okay, well, something we have to be able to separate is um, appearance from content, right? There's what's okay. in the picture and there's how it looks. So if I can just back up for one second, I'm going to give you the example of the muffin. Like it seems like people always think that muffins are healthy. And I, I, I always find myself scratching my head. Like, you know, you know, unless you're taking a really whole foods approach to nutrition, like there's really nothing very healthy about a muffin. It's probably full right. of refined sugar. It's probably got tons of fat. It's, you know, but you know, if you, if you put a muffin um, beside scrambled eggs and fruit and take a picture of it and you don't put any captions on it, well, hey, it looks like it's part of this healthy, nutritious breakfast, right? And yeah. so I think a big part of the reason we, that people think muffins are healthy is because they always get, it's like they, they, they're sort of like mooching off the healthy things that they get put beside, right? Like they, they, they get to benefit from the reputation of all the other healthy breakfast foods they get lumped in with. But in fact, oh, yeah. in fact, you know, I think we can agree that for the most part, unless we're doing like a really rad muffin remix, we're not talking about a health food here, right? Um, not right. by any standard. So this is an example of how something that's maybe not great for you can, can be packaged to look like it is. Now, what we see when we're talking about people blogging their food is the opposite. So it's taking... Um, you know, it's taking a meal that might, might, might usually be thought of as boring or you know, not, not necessarily noteworthy and packaging it up, you know, like, um, you know, even in the way we photograph it, so making, making leafy greens look brighter, making vegetables look more crisp, really, you know, highlighting the char marks on your steak, like these are things that really speak to people's appetites, right? And so these are the kinds of techniques people use to make food look fantastic, right? Like healthy food is never, ever um, photographed in black and white. It's always in full color. There are very specific ways that stylists know right. to, to, to portray food. Even things like, you know, um, food gets cut with, with dental floss and all kinds of interesting things. They don't just use a regular serrated knife, right? They have to look a certain way. Yeah, I, I mean, I've actually seen programs on Discovery Channel and even in my education about, um, you know, a lot of the food 
stylists. There's actually a whole profession of food mm-hmm. stylists. And most of the stuff is not even real, you know, and it looks so appetizing. And, and I'll tell you, one of the things that I've noticed they do on Food Network, and listeners, you can check this out if you've ever thought about this critically, but they close in on a food. The more close up you can get with like a macro lens, the better or somehow the the more professional or tasty it looks. Yeah. It's very funny to me, but they always will zoom in like microscope close yeah. and, and show these, these foods. And they do look more delicious that way because you can see the textures and, like you were saying, the colors. Everything is sort of um, maybe a little extra saturated with color or you know warm, warmer or cooler in the color depending on what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you mentioned earlier about the muffins, I also – I've long thought about that with cereals. Now, I actually yeah. think there's a place place for some kids' cereals after an intense workout. I mean, because I've worked with a lot of athletes that skip meals and that sort of thing, and, and I admit I have a weakness for Lucky Charms. But, <laughs> Don't we all? But, <laughs> I mean, you know, when you, when people say eat a colorful diet, I don't think they mean like red, you know, red number five and that sort of thing. But yeah. Um, but after a workout, you know, you're depleted, it's high glycemic index, they mix a little multivitamin in there, um, you're consuming it with dairy, and you're probably getting calcium and some other things you might not get. So I think there might be a time for that. But at the same time, right, the commercials, what do they do? They take this this otherwise heinous <laughs> food product, you know, usually some combination of sugar, starch, and fat, and uh, not much else, and they'll put it next to a glass of orange juice and you know, jam preserves on a piece of toast <laughs> and milk. And they, you know, they create this quote unquote wholesome look. But what's wholesome mean? You know, I mean, it, it does that carry nutritional uh, quantitation? No, no, it doesn't. You know, and they, like you said, it's almost like, you know, what it would be like trying to stand next to uh, noteworthy people. So you yourself look good, you know, and so yeah. let's take this heinous food product and we'll put it with some perceived good guys like milk or orange juice and make it part of a complete breakfast. Right? And Lonnie, you're, so. you're honing in on like the crux of this, which is that wholesome isn't something we've defined. It's something when we close our eyes, we have a mental picture about what it looks like, right? Because of the images that, you know, media and advertising and cookbooks have, you know, no pun intended, fed to us over years and years of our lives, right? We've seen what wholesome looks like. We, you know, and it's not because it's not, you know, for some people it'll be, you know, a picture of something their mom or dad made when they were growing up. For most of us, it's, it's these media conjured images about, you know, these, these really colorful spreads of fruits and vegetables sitting behind the granola bar or the cereal or the muffin or whatever. And so what, we, what we're seeing with, with lifters and athletes is the, the opposite. We see people make, so in, you know, in this lifting community, we have norms about the kinds of foods we eat, right? Like it's, it's not unusual for us to talk about, um, about food, you know, like certain meals that are, that are really familiar to everyone. Like everyone's eating oatmeal, everyone's eating, you know, certain things, right? And, sure, yeah. Um, what people are doing is, is they're taking the familiar and they're making it strange. And how do they do that? They're, they're making it look a way that we associate with other foods. So like, let's just take my morning bowl of oats, for instance, and I'm, you know, I'm going to put it in this amazing looking bowl. I'm going to garnish it with, you know, a little bit of um, grated raw chocolate, but it also has, you know, like berries and almond milk and all kinds of really good things in it. And I'm going to photograph it in, in just such a way that people look at it and they go, oh my God, that looks delicious, but I could probably never eat it. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is what we're, this is what we're seeing. It's, it's, it's the opposite of what I was just talking about. It's taking something really healthy, taking something that's really great for us and making it look almost off limits. 
Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do see how different, um, a different sort of value system with fit people might differ a little bit. Like at least my perception is that the general public in, in some ways has moved on from the Adkins super low carb era. But I see with a lot of fitness competitors and bodybuilders, I mean, that still seems to be the main, um, villain in a lot of ways mm -hmm. dietarily is sugar and refined carbohydrates, mm -hmm. you know, except at very specific times like mid or post workout or something purposeful, you know, but I, you see a lot of that. And I know like with the paleo thing with the cross, especially the CrossFit crowd yeah, and that right. sort of thing, you know, they have a very specific value system and I can almost see that people would want to, you know, present that like, look how well I fit the mold, yeah. you know, kind of thing. Um, well, well, you mentioned the emergence of food blogs a few times when we were going back and forth by email and, you know, photo sharing. One of the things that we touched on last week was the ubiquity of cell phone cameras, mm -hmm. you know, that, that no wonder people are taking pictures of themselves in the gym all the time and in the bathroom. And it used to be, and again, I'm not going to start going, you know, generational on you or anything, but, <laughs> you know, that, there was there was none of that, right? The Internet wasn't even big until the mid-90s, you know, so... There wasn't a lot of that kind of thing, and the rare pictures you saw were in magazines from professional photographers or photo shoots. You know, now you always see this. Sorry for the you know lame cell phone pic, but you know they take the picture anyway right. and they put it online and that sort of thing. Um, how do you think the emergence of food blogs and photo sharing is changing, like from the way we grew up? Can we just revisit that a little? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, we've always had the ability to take pictures of things. That's not new. But what's new is that we can share it, you know, with the push of a button. That's, you know, really the, the game changer is the ability to share things. Um, so, you know, one of, one of the things I found in my research and something that I'm, you know, really interested, continually interested in, in looking at is, the fact that when we take pictures of the food we eat and we post it online, especially if we make this a regular practice, something we're doing really often, there is the possibility that it can start to impact on our food habits. And that is because, um, you know, especially for people who, who actually keep dedicated food blogs, you know, where they, they're very regimented about sharing their pictures, um, you know, this, this this pressure to keep up a certain, um, you know, to keep up appearances when it comes to food, the pressure to, to continually be showing people that you're eating clean, that your food looks good, um, it can really wear on people. It really adds an extra layer to the, you know, the already, you know, the, the existing challenges of eating well, making time for food prep, um, you know, making good choices. And so, you know, as, as I mentioned here on my, um, my, my listener editorial, you know, even, um, the, the chair of, of mental health of the Canadian Obesity Network has said that, um, you know, this excessive food sharing can, can trigger kind of disordered behaviors because mm. people become so consumed with, with sharing, 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 right? And it's, it's not so different with physique photos either, right? If we're, if we're going to be giving people these regular updates on how we look, you know, whether it's at home in front of a mirror or at the gym in the locker room, um, you know, there's this, this, this pressure to, you know, to to sustain a certain um, a certain look, or or to make sure that your photos always look good. This this can really add to the psychological burden that you know you're already experiencing with your training and diet. Yeah, and you know, it's funny. I can definitely see that with fitness competitors and bodybuilders, uh, with the powerlifters. And I am not a competitive powerlifter, and and listeners know that. But uh, there seems to be this almost dichotomy where there are the guys that are trying to 
eat healthy, quote unquote, right, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. and fit certain preconceived notions about that, like more vegetable intake or or what have you. And then there are others that just wallow and, again, sort of endorse uh, a counterculture, and when I say counterculture, I mean counter to you know mainstream media, mm-hmm. where they're just posting the most heinous. Uh, I don't remember. It was one of the was it one of the West Side Barbell guys. Uh, he would just post the you know the most heinous things he could imagine, almost sort of creating this endorsement that I'm about calories. I don't care about my body fat. I'm about strength. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can see what you're saying about how there's this certain. Uh, testimonial sort of aspect to this sort of thing. You know, it's just interesting to me, though, because that group, you've got people that are bulking up on bars of refrigerated cookie dough, you know, like their candy bars. Uh, and then you've got others that are trying to lose body fat. Maybe their metabolism is different or they're entering at a different age or a different, you know, body fat percentage or whatever they're doing. But there's so many different ones. And when you add on top of that, the, all, the hundreds of different diet books, and even clinical diets, you know, that are out there, it probably leaves people, yeah, wondering, you know, is this healthy? Could, like you say before, uh, could that really be good for me, mm-hmm. right? So I think one of the things I'd like to ask you uh, before we wrap this up here is what what do you suggest? I know you're probably going to be cautious in answering this, but what would you suggest as people traverse this Internet landscape and look at Facebook and Instagram and all this and blogs and is there something that they should be looking for or considering when they're looking at these pictures and thinking how it might affect their own habits? Right. Well, I should, I should, I should you know, provide the preamble here that, like, because I'm a sociologist, my interest is never in, you know, in declaring one, one diet or one approach better than another. My interest is really in, in how are people talking about this? How does this shape our ideas? Um, mm-hmm. So, so I just want to put that out there. I'm not a diet expert or anything like that. Um, but what I would say is this: it's important for us to remember that these pictures are, are part of a project of impression management. That okay. when we look at pictures people are posting, we have to remember they're posted with a certain intent. Whether that intent is to hold themselves accountable, to provide a testimony to people about the kind of life they're living, to maybe generate blog income. Um, you know, there are a lot of peripheral things at play here when people post pictures of food. So, you know, look at the picture, try the recipe, um, you know, make a comment on a blog or a Facebook post, but, you know, remember that there are behind the scenes things going on. Like it's, it's like I said, you know, like I, I find myself saying all the time, it's, it's rarely just as simple as, as it's just about the food anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, last week we discussed a little bit about the, the sometimes, you know, self-promotional nature and people are selling themselves oftentimes, whether it's a physique picture or the photo. And like you said, maybe it's financial. They're trying to drive traffic to their blog. Sometimes I'm not even sure it's that. You know what I mean? It's maybe more personal in that they just you know want more attention and it gives them something to offer. Uh, I think I would suggest to listeners, like you said, think about what's going on in the background. When I was looking over some of our discussion on email, I was thinking how – you really need to consider the person's goals, right? The person who's the blogger or, you know, the, the photographer of the food. Yeah, what message are they sending? You know, I think about that all the time when I watch commercials. I mean, if you ever want to watch TV and kind of get an idea about what they're trying to do, turn the volume all the way down and just watch the visuals. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's almost shocking. Um, it's like removing um, the veil and seeing their real intent, you know, 
because you're not hearing all the sort of verbiage and sounds that go with it. And you're just watching what they're flashing at you, you know. And I think there there's similarities here that, you know, think about the goal of what's the person's goal. Is that person like you or not, you know, as opposed to trying to tag a definition on there or a value like, oh, that's good. I should be eating that, you know, because then if you listen to different gurus and they have different goals, you're going to be – chasing cat herding cats you know what i mean it's going to be a a very bizarre um amalgamated kind of diet that you end up on because these people have different goals and different purposes like you say for posting this stuff and then the consumer who's looking at that let's say you're an over fat weight lifter and you're like i'm really trying to lean down well when phil posts something that's not what he's about he's about enjoying food and probably shoveling in the calories you know when he's trying to force feed and gain weight so that's a different category, obviously. And then, you know, it leaves people, like you said, if they're not a nutrition expert or even well-educated sort of systematically on it uh, in one way or another, they're left trying to decide, is this good or not? Is this for me or not, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and if I can just, you know, add one more thing, it's that, you know, like when, when we – a lot of these really popular blogs, blogs that have huge readership that people go to, to to see, you know, the pictures and use the recipes – um, a lot of these bloggers get book deals, and what they end up doing is having having books that are often about their, you know, their life. There's often a lifestyle transformation story that goes with it, and mm-hmm. you know, these people these people are are rarely have educational backgrounds in, um, you know, any kind of training or nutrition or anything like that, but. Um, you know, as I've said in my editorial, this is a new generation of experts that wears their expertise on their body. So there are credentials that we carry, you know, like B.Ed., M.S.C., and then there are credentials that we wear, and those are those are the credentials of, you know, I've done my time, I've, you know, I've put in my hours in the gym, this is how my body looks, I wear my expertise on my body. And this is an expertise that... You know, anecdote is valuable, but we, we have to consider it cautiously, right? When people are giving us advice because they've been there and done that, they've been there and done that in their bodies with their experiences. They have, you know, a different story than ours. So, you know, it, it's great that people are sharing. It's great that we have these alternative sources of expertise now, but we have to consider it all. You know, we, we have to make sure that we're really varying our sources of, of information, right, that we're that we're consulting with with really good, really credible, you know, peer-reviewed sort of information sources of how they're actually, you know, living it out. So, yeah, I I would, you know, just to add to what you were saying, caution people that expertise takes many forms, and and that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. There's a plurality of ways we can express our knowledge. But, um, you know, to, to never consider any of those exclusively, to remember that no knowledge exists in a vacuum, that your experience as a lifter, as someone who has, you know, lost weight, gained weight, um, achieved certain performance, um, you know, pre- performance achievements, um, those things are um, are to be considered alongside the huge buffet of, of great uh, information sources out there. You know, that's true. And I, there's an ongoing discussion that I've seen on both the Iron Radio Facebook page and other forums about people will say, oh, I don't need, you know, that highfalutin university stuff, you know, and I've taught myself or I'm about the real world. And I think one of the things that we've tried to do, at least over the years that we've been doing the podcast is, like you were saying, enjoy that buffet. You know, there's a variety of ways to learn these things. I would suggest, please, guys, don't or gals poo poo formal education, it really does 
build in sort of a scaffolding sort of way. What, you know, prerequisite course leads to a more advanced course and this and that. And when people who say that's not real world, I always found that a little bit offensive because, as you know, Jaya, being tested on a regular basis every couple of weeks for years on end, you know, you have to prove yourself repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And you have to make sure, you know, those sort of curricula make sure that you don't have huge gaps. And I think one of the risks you take if all you do is listen to coaches and you overemphasize the experiential part or the online guru part is you could become very educated on a particular topic, but you could have vast holes uh, in your understanding of certain things. You know, uh, my wife and I often sort of joke back and forth about, you know, everything is biopsychosocial, you know, and I tend to make everything biology, you know, how it's brain chemistry or metabolism. And she's much more on the, you know, personal psychology side as a counselor, you know, and like you're saying, there's all these social cues that none of this stuff is in a vacuum. You know what I mean? So I think that's up for pretty much everybody to try to do, which is how can I gather these things? How can I find you know, these gold nuggets in these different things, whether it's um, practical knowledge or not? And before I forget, uh, everybody, there's in the upper right on our home page, we're gonna, I'm going to put this up after uh, I post the show. Um, Jaya also did uh, an editorial uh, we don't often promote these enough, I think, but we get, um, you know, contributor editorials from people like Jaya, John Mike, and listeners, if you're willing, you're very welcome to do this as well. These are usually five to ten minute posts. It's sort of like um, a public radio NPR type of thing where you can listen to these short snippets. It's on our archives page where we host or uh, present, you know, past shows down at the bottom there's these listener editorials, and there's a new one from Jaya, and I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, you can do it in your pajamas. I highly recommend it. And, and you know what, too? I did that partly because Iron Radio is a you know quasi-academic almost. We have plenty of professors. We don't just have athletes, although that's important, too. Again, back to that whole mission kind of thing. But um, you know, it's a way to get a, at least a partly edited or peer-reviewed chance, you know, to participate in a legitimate, you know, fitness community kind of thing, because goodness knows if all you do is surf forums, and I know Fortress talks about this all the time, but, you know, they can just degrade into such a quagmire of profanity and and pornography that you can't even (laughs) get anything out of it. I think he does it because it's amusing to him, you know, after being in the industry for so long, but to the uninitiated, you know, you could waste an awful lot of time doing that sort of thing. So, yeah, please consider... um, sending an editorial if you want. You just record it on your own. Almost anybody can do it now. Like we say, not only do cell phones have cameras and good ones, but they also have recording stuff right on them. You know, um, computers do as well. So it's really not that hard to do that. Um, yeah, good idea. And, you know, I'll just say one more thing, especially if you're if you're a student. This is a really, you know, talking about your research or your research interests is probably one of the best ways you can develop your expertise is just, you know, putting it in words to an audience that's maybe not familiar with your field. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lifelong student here, but I'm just finishing up. I just finished my master's. And for me, this was an awesome experience in just practicing, you know, talking about my own research. So, yes, um, you know, I'm, I'm pimping this editorial, you know, hardcore from here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, I've been, uh, I think, three times in the spring, in 2013, I've seen stuff from the Chronicle of Higher Education and other sources that say you really need to develop what they call your elevator speech. Even scientists need to do this. So if, you know, if I bump into some funding source, some grant 
god or goddess in the elevator, you know, I better I better be prepared to if they say, "Oh, so what do you do?" I better be able to put that into a succinct, purposeful spiel for them. And not just to get money, but anything, like in journalism or anything else, right? I mean, you should be able to get your point across, you know, fairly quickly and get your main points and like you said, being able to condense this down, teaching somebody else something is really a great great way to learn yourself. Mm-hmm. You know. Okay, well, thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's, you know, the, the pendulum on Iron Radio, it, like I said, it swings back and forth between academics to competitors. Honestly, a lot of the academics are also lifters in some way, like yourself. Um, and, and also from food to lifting and back, you know. So uh, we just try to keep enough variety on there, I guess. So, you know, this is a good one. I like when things go back to food. Obviously, I'm, I'm a nutritionist and a, and a foodie myself. <laughs> So it's it's interesting to look at the sociological context of this. Like I said, everything's biopsychosocial. So get away from the bio a little bit and look at some of the sociology of it. It's, it's interesting stuff because you know it's changing so rapidly. You know, so absolutely. You know, I'll, I'll let you. I'll leave those last words to you because you're right. It's all about the social. <laughs> <laughs> no vested everybody's interest got, over here. <laughs> that's right. Everybody's got their own expertise. So. Okay. Well, listeners, uh, we'll see you next week. Like I said, um, Rob and Phil being gone this week, so it's, it's just me boring you, but at least we have Jaya here to entertain and inform. And uh, thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types practical applications and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state of the art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you could hold up and say, this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here. I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however. Obviously, I've done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. 
The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need. 